Because without the resurrection, Jesus was just a great man who loved people really well and set a great example. But he's not able to defeat death or save us from our sin. And his life isn't terribly consequential if he hasn't been risen from the dead. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then he's not the Son of God. So you could approach his words with kind of a take it or leave it approach. You know, apply what might be helpful and just discard the rest. But, Jesus, but if Jesus rose from the dead, and I intend to show you that he did, then everything changes. He's not just a great man. He's the Son of God. He didn't just set a great example. He paid the penalty for the sins of his people and then defeated death. His words are not just the opinions of a philosopher or a teacher. They are the authoritative words of God Almighty. When people encounter the risen Christ unexpectedly, everything changes. It happened to the Apostle Paul when he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. When he was Saul. Saul hated followers of Jesus. To Saul, Jesus was a blasphemer who was a threat to God's people who had gotten what he had deserved on the cross. And he was determined to silence people who were going around saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. But all of that changed when Saul encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Humbled, terrified, and blinded, Saul got up from the dirt a new man after he came face to face with the reality of the risen Jesus Christ. He was baptized shortly after that and he became Paul, missionary to the Gentiles. If you are not a follower of Jesus, first of all, I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here. And my prayer today is that you will come face to face with the risen Jesus Christ in his word this morning. And that you'll leave here a new person, not the same. And if you are a follower of Jesus, my prayer is that your faith will be fanned into flames this morning as you're reminded afresh of Jesus' awesome power and tender mercy. The main point of the message this morning is that Jesus' resurrection changes everything for doubters and deserters who can't seem to get it together. Jesus' resurrection changes everything for doubters and deserters who can't seem to get it together. I'm going to read Mark 16, 1-8. Uh, Doug read that portion of the passage earlier, but I want to read it again since that's the text that I'll be teaching from this morning. Then I'll briefly pray, and then we'll dive in. Here's what God's Word says. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. 
and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This morning, um, I want to look at three things. I want to look at the reality of the resurrection, the response of the women, and the restoration of the disciples. The reality of the resurrection, the response of the women, and the restoration of the disciples. So let's first dive into the reality of the resurrection. So early on Sunday morning, two days after Jesus had died on the cross, Mary, Mary, and Salome bought spices and they went to visit the tomb where Jesus had been laid to anoint his body. And they knew where Jesus was buried because these were the same women who saw Jesus die and they were eyewitnesses to where he was buried. In chapter 15, verse 40, Mark tells us that there were also women looking on from a distance as Jesus hung on the cross, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And then in verse 47, a few verses later, Mark says, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So the women who went to anoint Jesus' body were eyewitnesses to his death and his burial. There was no doubt in their minds that Jesus was dead. They saw it happen. And usually you would anoint the body as quickly as possible uh, before decomposition began to set in, but they had been delayed by the Sabbath. And so they had to wait until after the Sabbath was complete to go and anoint Jesus' body. So early Sunday morning, as soon as they could, they demonstrated their devotion and their love to Jesus by going to honor Him by anointing His body with spices. And because they fully expected Jesus' body to be in the tomb, on the way they had a conversation about how they were going to roll away the stone that was in front of the entrance to the tomb. This stone would have been very large and it would have been set in a notch in the ground, which would have made it extremely difficult and it would have taken considerable strength to be able to move it out of the way and these women weren't going to be able to do it on their own. But upon arriving, to their great surprise, they discovered that the stone was already rolled away. And when they went inside the tomb, they discovered that Jesus' body was not there. Instead, there was an angel in a white robe who was inside telling them that Jesus is alive. This historical account of Jesus' resurrection based on eyewitness testimony is why the gospel is called good news. Because death has been defeated. It's not just a fairy tale. It's an actual event in history that a man died and by his own power he rose from the dead. This single event has altered the history of the world. And it has changed the eternal destinies of believers around the world. Because Jesus has risen, everything has changed. Now, some say that the resurrection of Jesus is just a a legend made up by his disciples much later after he died. But just reading through the Gospels, it becomes clear that this, this doesn't read like a legend. There's several reasons. Let me give you a few. First of all, there were multiple eyewitnesses who are identified by name, very specifically. Mark names specific women who could have corroborated or refuted his account when he wrote it. He says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, 
and of Joseph and Salome, just in case you were confused about which Mary this is, okay? Mark's giving very specific details here, eyewitnesses. Details like this make the gospel account read like a news report, not a made-up story, not a fairy tale. And secondly, these, these first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection are women. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to us today, but in first century Israel, that was a very big deal. Because you see, in Jewish culture in the first century, the testimony of a woman was not even considered admissible in court. So it would, have, it would have been embarrassing to the church to have three women as the very first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And in fact, there were many who maligned and scoffed at the church for that reality. If you were making up a story, you would have been, in, you would have been crazy to insert that detail into the story. It would have just been a foolish thing to do if you wanted people to actually take you serious and believe you during that time. Of course, it's just like God to use the least expected to shame the wisdom of the wise, isn't it? That's how God loves to work. Third thing I want to point out is that the disciples who had scattered at Jesus' death suddenly changed and began to boldly proclaim Jesus' resurrection. We'll talk about this more later, but Mark's account of Jesus' resurrection ends with the women running away in fear. Did you notice that? Isn't that kind of an awkward ending? Like they're running away afraid. The disciples were hiding out in a room in utter terror that they were going to be next on the crucifixion list. And yet 50 days later, in the book of Acts, we see them boldly standing in public before the Jewish authorities insisting that Jesus is alive and that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that everyone must repent and believe in him. What changed? What changed? And they went to their grave proclaiming this message. All 12 disciples, except for John, were martyred for bearing witness to Jesus' resurrection. What but the bodily resurrection of Jesus could explain this change? Fourthly, the tomb was really empty. We have an empty tomb on our hands that we need to reckon with here. You have to have an explanation for that. It's noteworthy that the tomb, that the fact of the empty tomb is not even historically disputed. The Jewish authorities never denied the empty tomb. Instead, they just tried to deny they, they tried to say that Jesus' body had been stolen. But there was never a denial that that tomb was empty. People just tried to explain it away in other ways. They couldn't deny the empty tomb because you could go see it. There's a whole lot more evidence that could be supplied, but I don't want to belabor the point. The bottom line is that the only logical explanation for all of these facts and so much of the other evidence is that Jesus really did rise from the dead and that he's alive. It's an historical event that everyone must reckon with. If Jesus is alive, then he is not just a mere man. He's God. And Christianity is not just a single choice on a big menu of perfectly good religious options to choose from. No, Jesus' words are authoritative, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father. No one can come to God except through Him. It's only through Jesus that we can have life because only Jesus has defeated death. So if you want to live, you must trust in Jesus. The response of the women 
is noteworthy. If you're taking notes, this is the second point. The response of the women. I want us to take some time to consider how these women respond to this reality of Jesus' resurrection. If What was striking to me as I studied this passage is that the tone of the passage is one of alarm. Right? Like the women aren't rejoicing and praising God going like, we knew it! We knew it. We knew all along he was going to be resurrected. He's alive. Woohoo! Like, that's not what's happening in these eight verses, is it? And they're, they're shocked and they're afraid. In verse 5, it says they were alarmed when they encountered the angel in the empty tomb, which is understandable. I mean, it'd be a little unnerving. You're just, you know, going to the cemetery expecting to honor your friend. And you walk up, and the first alarming thing is that the, the stones rolled away. And so that kind of gets you a little on edge, like, what happened? Who's inside? You know, did somebody, is somebody here? You know, and then you walk in, and his, his body's gone. And there's an angel in dazzling white sitting there. I mean, you'd probably be pretty alarmed yourself if you found yourself in that situation. And then he begins to, the angel begins to tell them that, that Jesus, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the one who you just saw die two days ago on the cross. Yeah, he's not here. He's alive. Remember how he told you before all of this happened, what was going to take place? So you need to go tell his disciples and Peter to, that he's going to meet you in Galilee, just like he told you he was going to. So go ahead and go tell everyone. And their response is that in verse 8, Mark says they fled from the tomb, trembling and afraid. Why were they so afraid? I suppose they were alarmed by all these things because they were all so unexpected. Minutes earlier, they were sad as they had mourned their friend and teacher. They had hoped that he was the Messiah, but in their minds, that door was closed. After all, death is the final word, isn't it? So their biggest concern was who was going to roll away the big rock that sealed Jesus' tomb. I wonder if they even thought, you know, maybe if, I sure wish Jesus was alive, if he would have been here, he could have rolled that tomb way easy. We saw him do miracles all the time. But upon arriving at the tomb, every expectation that they had was shattered. The stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty. All of this must have been the shock of a lifetime. I suppose they were also afraid because who wouldn't be afraid in the face of such awesome power? It's interesting that throughout the book of Mark, the response when Jesus peels back the curtain to his divine power is fear or terror. Let me give you like a few examples in uh, when Jesus calmed the storm, in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, he tells, uh, the, Mark 4.41 tells us that the disciples were filled with great fear and said to each other, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? When Jesus healed the demon-possessed man, and uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 15 tells us that the townspeople were afraid when they saw the man clothed and in his right mind. And when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured before them, standing with Moses and Elijah in all of his glory, Mark tells us in chapter 9, verse 6, that they were terrified. The women may also have been afraid because they, along with Jesus' disciples, had doubted his words. It's true, the women were, I would say, the bravest of all the disciples. They didn't tuck tail and run like Peter. But they still stood at a distance, and none of them believed Jesus when he told them again and again that he was going to suffer and die, and then three days later rise from the dead. 
What's really fascinating is that Mark ends his gospel account with the women running away from the tomb afraid and saying nothing to anyone. Now, at this point, there may be some of you thinking to yourself, wait a minute, pastor, there's 11 more verses here. What do you mean Mark ends his gospel account here? Well, most of your Bibles should have a note there after verse 8 saying something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. That's because as more manuscripts of the New Testament have been discovered uh, through archaeological digs and things like that, dating closer and closer to the time when Mark wrote his gospel, those earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20 of Mark chapter 16. So this has led most scholars to conclude that this was a later addition to the book of Mark. I want to actually, I want to pause briefly to point out something important. Um, One of the most prevalent and unchallenged assumptions in our culture is that the Bible has been changed over time. That the Bible has just been changed and we can't really trust the Bible that we have today because who knows if it's anywhere even close to the original words of Scripture. And I'll just be honest, even like 10 minutes of basic research can easily debunk this myth. Um, here's why. Because of the tens of thousands of manuscripts that we now have, through a process called textual criticism, we can be supremely confident in our Bibles. The Bible that you have in your lap is extremely reliable. In fact, there is no work of literature in the history of the world about which we can be more certain that we have the original text than the Bible. That's because we have so many copies that we can compare spanning from the second century on throughout the history. So so what we can do is scholars can actually compare a copy of, say, the book of Mark from the 10th century with a copy of the book of Mark from the 4th century and see that they're virtually the same, save for some minor scribal errors, which is going to happen when you copy things by hand. You're going to miss a period or a letter here and there. But, the, but we have thousands of them, and so we're able to put them together and have an incredibly high degree of confidence that the Bible we have today is the words that were written in the first century. So please don't be unnerved by people who say that the Bible is unreliable. It's just not true. It's just not true. It's incredibly reliable. Now, with that being said, why on earth would Mark choose to end his gospel like this? Why would Mark close out the gospel with the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection running away scared? That doesn't seem to like inspire a lot of confidence, does it? It's not like this, this high note that we would want to go out on. I think some important background info can shed some light on what Mark is doing here. First, it's important to remember that Mark was writing to persecuted Christians in the Roman Empire. He was probably writing from Rome in in the 50s AD, and the church was facing heavy persecution. And their great temptation would have been to say nothing to anyone out of fear, just like the women fleeing the tomb here. Second thing that's important to point out is that Mark himself had experience running away in fear. Right after the disciples fled after Jesus' arrest, in chapter 14, verse 51, Mark writes this. He says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So right after Jesus is arrested, 
all the disciples flee. And Mark says that there's this mystery man who's got nothing but a linen cloth following Jesus. And they try to arrest him and they grab him by the cloak and he manages to wriggle away and he sprints off naked running through the the woods in the Garden of Gethsemane to get away. And many scholars believe that Mark is talking about himself here. And I happen to agree. I think that it, if you, as you read through the story, I think it's, it becomes clear that Mark is referring to himself and inserting himself here in the story. But that wouldn't be the last time that Mark ran. Because if you'll recall from the book of Acts, several years later, Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey after persecution against them intensified. The Apostle Paul was so affected by this that he and Barnabas even split ways after Paul refused to take Mark with them on the second missionary journey. Paul said, I'm not taking this guy with me. He abandoned us last time. Now, we're able, we, we come to find out at, by the end uh, of, of Acts that Mark does get restored in his relationship to Paul and there's restoration and healing that happens there. But the bottom line is that Mark kind of had a history of this. He struggled with fear pretty clearly in his life. So you've got a gospel account being written by a Christian who struggles with with doubting and deserting, being written to a church that was tempted to do the same. And Mark wants the church to have confidence, to know and believe that Jesus is alive. So I think it makes perfect sense for Mark to end his gospel this way. He's writing to reassure and to embolden doubters and deserters who can't seem to get it together. And this is what makes the message that God gives through the angel to tell the disciples in verse 7 so amazing. Read that with me again. The angel says to the women, he says, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Did you notice that that the angel singles out Peter specifically here in this message? Why would he do that? Why does he single out Peter? Well, I I think a couple of reasons. First, um, most most people believe that Peter was Mark's primary source for writing the Gospel of Mark. So Mark was probably talking with Peter about this. But I think the primary reason why is we need to go back to Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 31 to understand why the angel singles Peter out here. Let me read Mark 14, 26 to 31. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just after Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples, right before he's about to be arrested. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then what? What does Peter do? Peter says, nope, even if they all fall away, Jesus, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, he said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So Peter's standing here before Jesus, the night right before Jesus is about to be arrested and betrayed. And he swears up and down that he would never fall away. He would never deny Jesus. And that is exactly what he does mere hours later. Despite Peter's greatest efforts, he shrunk back 
during Jesus' greatest trials. So what does Jesus do in response to Peter's betrayal, in response to Peter's denial? He says, go tell my disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee just like I told him three days ago he would. What Jesus is doing here is he is gently and lovingly reaffirming Peter. He didn't shame him. He patiently restored his faith. Perhaps you feel, perhaps you came this morning feeling like a huge failure. Maybe you've made vows to God to stop sinning or to live better, but you just keep falling back right into the same pattern of sin over and over again. Can I just invite you to wave the white flag of surrender this morning to stop trying to impress Jesus and to fall into His arms of grace and let Him love you in your messiness and in your sin? Jesus is not impressed by us. He's not looking for a few good men. He's looking for broken men and women who know that they need Him, who know that they can't do anything apart from Him. In Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle enough to forgive and to restore doubters and deserters, and he is strong enough to raise us to new life. Jesus is the gentle shepherd, and Jesus is also the risen king. His resurrection means that he is able to give new life to doubters and deserters like Peter or Mark or you or me. There may be some others of you who, uh, here who are still under the illusion that you can earn your way to heaven. That if you're a good enough person, God will certainly understand and overlook your mistakes. But as sincere as you might be, like Peter, you don't have the ability to cash the checks that you're trying to write to God. You can resolve all that you want to be a good person, but you cannot possibly measure up to the righteousness of God. You can't do it. God is perfectly holy and without blemish, and even just one sin brings a separation between you and God. That it, it, it creates a chasm between you and God that there's no way you could ever possibly bridge. It, it puts you into a debt that you could never possibly repay because God is infinitely holy. There's not a person on the planet who can say that they've loved God with all their heart and loved their neighbor as yourself. Apart from Christ, we are all in this helpless and hopeless position. So the best thing that you could possibly do for yourself this morning is not leave here with a spiritual charge up going, I'm going to resolve to try to be a better person this year. I've been inspired by the Easter story and I'm going to try harder. If that's what you hear, then man, you've missed it. No, the best thing you could possibly do this morning is recognize and admit that I am a failure. I have deserted Jesus. I have let Jesus down, but He loves me anyways. And I can fall into His arms of grace and He'll forgive me and He'll make me new and He'll change me from the inside out. If you want to be a new person, you got to come to Him and let Him change you. You can't change yourself. 
That's the whole purpose. What I want to try to show you guys, what I want to show you, church, I want you to see just how tender and gentle Jesus is with wayward, weak sheep, but how strong and mighty he is that he's defeated death and he is able to raise you up bodily from the grave and to give you new spiritual life now, here. Like the resurrection doesn't just have implications for the future one day after we die. That's true. That's a glorious reality. We can face even death with confidence because to live is Christ, but to die is gain for Christians. You will be raised bodily from the dead if you have trusted in Christ because you are in Him. Because He's alive, you will live forever. That changes the way that we see things. But there's also an aspect of the resurrection that changes everything in the here and the now. God gives you, when you're born again, you get new spiritual life now. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Romans 6 says that we've been buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in new life. There's new life in you. So you don't have to run away scared anymore. You don't have to live in fear and in timidity and, and, and to be unnerved by your circumstances around you. You can walk in newness of life and in the confidence of the resurrection. There's no doubt about it. There are trials and difficulties and dangers that could tempt us to not say anything to anyone about Jesus while we run away afraid. But everything changes when we walk into those dangers or into that darkness with the risen Jesus at our side. The darkness suddenly isn't dark anymore. We have the risen Jesus with us. Our future is certain. Our flesh dwells secure. We'll be raised bodily from the dead and the spirit of the risen Christ dwells in us now, giving us the faith that we need to confidently make Jesus known, to go and tell the world that He is alive. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything for doubters and deserters who can't seem to get it together. So if you came here this morning ashamed because you can't get your life together, I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus and to let Him restore you today. We'd love to pray with you after the service and Uh, Afterwards, there's going to be a couple of us down here up front. And if you would like to pray uh, with one of us, I just want to invite you to come. And and we'll have a couple of pastors down here. And we would love to pray with you. We'd love to help you learn how to begin following Jesus. Maybe you are a believer. Maybe you are a Christian. And you've just been struggling with doubt or with fear. Maybe you feel ashamed because you feel like you've deserted Jesus, abandoned Him. You haven't been living for Him. Maybe you feel guilty because you've been doubting Him. And Jesus died for your sins, so you don't need to live in shame. Just like He gently restored Peter, He will gently restore you this morning. And Jesus rose from the dead, so you don't need to be afraid anymore. Your King is alive. He's with you. We don't need to be an intimidated church. There's nothing out there that needs to intimidate us. So if that's you and you need to pray with somebody, come up to the front and we would love to pray with you and encourage you and intercede on your behalf. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up to get ready to close. As they're coming up, I just want to give a few more thoughts here.
You know, I think for the church, I think that Mark ends his gospel this way so that it acts as a sort of invitation for Christians. It's as if Mark is, is saying to the church as he ends his gospel with these women running away, afraid, and like, what does this mean? It's as if he's saying to the church, don't let this be the way that your story ends. Don't give in to the fear of suffering or of what other people think about you. So friends, this news that the Son of God has died for our sins and risen bodily from the grave needs to be shared. So who can you share this good news with this week? That's what I want to leave you with. Who can you share this good news with about Jesus' resurrection? Maybe it's a, a family member or a friend or a coworker. Let's not keep this good news to ourselves. Let's proclaim it. Let's share it. And one way we can proclaim this great salvation that's in Christ is by singing about it. And so we're going to respond to the message and close out our time of worship by doing just that. We're going to stand and we're going to sing about how our salvation is in Christ alone and in what He's accomplished through His death and His resurrection. So let me pray and then we'll stand and sing. Lord, thank You so much for the gospel. Jesus, we praise You and worship You. You are the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins and You are alive forevermore. I pray that knowing that would encourage your people today and that we would go forward this week in confidence knowing that our King is alive. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.